Welcome to this special COVID-19 episode of the Caring Greatly podcast. As always, this podcast is focused on issues of leadership and humanity in healthcare. But during the COVID-19 crisis, we're focusing on the particular challenges raised by the novel coronavirus response. In today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Pamela Weibel, physician, author, and advocate for a more humane medical system. Dr. Weibel runs a suicide hotline for physicians, providing an outlet for physicians to share concerns, distress, and emotional reactions to today's inhumane medical training and practice environments without fear of punishment or reprisal. She also participated in the recently released documentary film, Do No Harm, that looks at the issues driving physician suicide and what reforms are necessary to reverse them. Welcome, Dr. Weibel, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me and getting into this taboo topic and helping create the change we want to see. Yeah, it's a hard topic to to discuss, but really important. Uh, A lot of folks have been talking about burnout. And even before COVID-19, physicians and medical students were dying of suicide at a rate that far exceeds the general population. Why is that? Yeah, we're dying at two to three times the rate of the of our patients, which should be concerning. And I believe it is, of course, multifactorial, but certainly occupationally induced. You have a group of very bright, you know, high achieving people who are many of them perfectionists and, um, you know, wanting to help and heal others, often because some of them have experienced pain in their own lives. I think many of us from our pain of personal experience want to help others, right? So, you know, oftentimes people will tell me, well, my brother was premature, so I want to be a neonatologist. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, there's some family experience. Well, my family doctor was so kind to me, I wanted to grow up to be just like him or her. And so you have this beautiful young person who often chooses this career based on noble humanitarian sorts of, um, you know, feelings. And then they end up in a medical education system that's anything but humane and compassionate, and they feel thwarted. So I think the the trauma starts from day one of medical school, or maybe during even the pre-med time with the sort of cutthroat competition Mm. and feeling like you're in, you know, biology 101, not to learn biology, but to be weeded out of the process, you know, there's this weeding component. So I feel like you take these young, beautiful people and they're unfortunately exposed to a medical education system that does not honor or respect their original intentions and dreams for entering the profession. And it just goes downhill from there. (laughs) Downhill in, in what ways? Can you add a little bit more? So once they're in the practice environment, what's happening to physicians that, that makes such a, a toxic environment for them? So the medical education system is one that's competitive and not collaborative. And a lot of that, if you look at sort of what are the foundational elements that lead to this, it's the lack of residency spots and the feeling that literally your success depends on the failure of those sitting next to you. So mm. there is this, and they even will say that during orientation many years, they'll say, look around the room, you know, a third of you won't be here next year. And so it sort of creates this terrible mindset where you are out for your own survival against your peers. And I think Mm. that never ends in medicine because it becomes so ingrained that you need to, you know, this is your patient and, you know, and this one's stealing your patient and, you know, this is your territory. And this is, you know what I mean? It's, it's sort of like 
this feeling that like everyone is against you and you have to be like very much aggressively out for your own survival. And the lack of residency slots creates a huge problem because you've got like more than a thousand U.S. graduates every year that don't get matched. So they have a worthless piece of paper that's called a medical degree with $300,000 of student debt. And that's right. very demoralizing. And then I think the other big element that really creates a problem for us is the way medical residencies are set up that are absolutely humane with hazardous working conditions, 28-hour shifts, which would be illegal. You know, that's three times the amount that pilots, truck drivers, or any other industry that values safety has their workers um, working. And, you know, you know, 100-hour work weeks, uh, you know, these people are working the equivalent of two to three full-time jobs, which is probably why they're dying by suicide at two to three <laughs> times the rate of the general public. Yeah. Because, and it's not just baking cakes, they're watching people die. Right. You know, two to three full time jobs without adequate supervision or mentorship. And these are, again, sensitive people that went in with great humanitarian intentions were thwarted at every every step of the way by a uh, antiquated medical education system. And then, of course, when you finish the whole thing, you find out that your only value is RVU generation, you know, and they want you right. to generate, you know, the highest number of dollars per millisecond. And you really feel like you're, you're being used, <laughs> you know, like your kindness, your intellect, your heart and soul is being taken advantage of every step of the way. Right. RVUs for which you must do an intense amount of documentation in order for them to qualify and count too, which, right. which is not, um, not why people go to medical school. So if that's the situation, even before COVID, what's the impact that the COVID-19 crisis is having on physicians from your perspective? I think it just opens the Pandora's box and allows us to see amid the pandemic what already pre-existed. Mm -hmm. And uh, also is bringing up the clear mental health um, disparities <laughs> that physicians face compared to the general public. Um, if you work at Walmart, Starbucks, you know, truck driver, wherever, you know, you're not having to answer questions about your mental health on your job applications because it's against the Americans with Disabilities Act. However, physicians are answering these over and over again on job applications, medical licensing applications, uh, even to be in network with like Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield, they're asking about your mental health history. And you know what, it's really nobody's business if I had postpartum depression or anxiety as a teenager, or test anxiety in med school, like I shouldn't have to defend myself, right. but I sought marital counseling in front of a medical board. And there are Many, many states that ask, have you ever had with a list of mental health issues? And so this drives physicians during COVID and pre-COVID underground, literally by suicide or underground in seeking off the grid mental health care services or not getting mental health care at all because they don't right. want to ever admit on these licensing applications that have the fine print, if you lie on here, we'll take your license and you'll have a mega fine and you might go to prison or whatever, you know? So yeah. do, because these are do-gooders and they want to answer honestly, it just causes them to neglect themselves mm. and not seek the care that they deserve. And that, I, I think that's particularly, I mean, it's scary at all times and inappropriate and unfair at all times. And as we look at the level of trauma that first of all, all populations have been going through right now. 
Second of all, that if you're in healthcare, you are on the front lines and putting yourself in danger and questioning whether you can keep your family safe in a way that, that is not typical of all of, of normal healthcare activities and, and putting put in situations that would always would cause any person to have a PTSD reaction or otherwise psychological trauma. And now facing this situation where where getting access to mental health is both taboo and potentially dangerous to your profession, which yeah. just is insanity. It is insanity. And you'd think that medical um, culture would set the standard, like the gold standard for how to care for one another, but we are inflicting uh, punishment upon our own people who seek mental health care. Yeah. So, Looking ahead, what kinds of reforms and resources will be necessary to reverse the trend of physician distress and suicide in the aftermath of COVID-19? So a lot of people get obviously pretty overwhelmed with the topic of physician suicide because in my mind, it's like a triple taboo topic. I mean, most people don't really want to wake up and talk about death in the morning over breakfast, nor do they want to hear that a close friend of theirs or their doctor died by suicide because then it's like unexpected death in your face, now sudden funeral. And then if it's your doctor, it's so, so destabilizing for people because, wow, these are the people we go to for help and they're dying by suicide at a greater rate than we are as the general population. And so I think there's been such a taboo nature to this that we just haven't talked about it. And I'm very concerned about suicide censorship because censoring a topic actually will stall our ability to solve it, right? So telling the truth and honestly looking at the data, which doesn't really exist because it's been so taboo that we haven't been tracking it, um, that's part of the problem. So the number one thing I want to say is that suicide is not the problem. Censorship is. Mm -hmm. So once we can stop censoring free speech and the truth, we as intelligent adults can actually solve this, especially physicians. Like they're very, very innovative, resourceful people. And if we were not so fearful about speaking about this, we would be able to solve it. And quite honestly, just even reading a few physician suicide notes they clearly identify why they died by suicide. So it's no mystery. They have it all outlined. They're documentarians by nature. They're archivists. And so it's not like, oh, gee, we just don't know. They've written a three-page suicide note completely detailing why they died. And had we taken an interest as a culture in removing some of these problems from our medical training and such, we could prevent future suicides. But the other thing that I think is most important when I share with sort of a general audience, you know, what should we do? I actually am not asking for any special favors for doctors and medical students. All I want is for them to be protected by the same laws that everyone else in the country is being protected by, like labor laws, like the 40 hour work week or something definitely under 60 because 60 is the cutoff for like being able to physiologically survive intact as a human being. Um, also, you know, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, mm -hmm. just uh, that's all I'm asking for is that we allow the people who are caring for us to benefit from protection from the same laws that protect everyone else. That 
certainly sounds reasonable. I want to circle back, though, to the, the question of censorship, because this comes up in the film, Do No Harm, which we'll link to on our page with this podcast for others who want to access it. It's, it's, it's a difficult to watch, but really important to watch film. But it brings up, you know, notes that are coming to you and to others saying, my, my leadership is, won't let us talk about it. It's the third person who's jumped off of a building, and we're not allowed to talk about it. Talk more about how that censorship happens, because I don't want people listening to think, oh, well, of course, those suicide notes aren't getting published. But even the fact of suicide is getting censored. So can you, you talk more about what that looks like to get rid of that censorship? Right. Well, I want to point to India because I really think that India is um, handling death and suicide often in a much more progressive way than the United States and other nations. For example, in India, if there is the suicide of a medical student and they leave a note, uh, particularly even if they name people who've harassed them, you know, like their superiors, there is a law in India abetment to suicide. It is illegal to encourage anyone to die by suicide. And those people named in that suicide note, which will be read on the evening news, will be uh, taken down to the police station on the same day as the death. And so, yeah, I think that that's an example example of action being taken against, uh, for example, Payal, I believe it was her first name, P-A-Y-A-L. If you look this up, there was sort of a caste, a racist type of, uh, speaking on, you know, racism, which is quite obviously in the news right now. She was um, uh, denigrated and, and mistreated by superior residents to her based on her caste. Okay. And she died by suicide. And they took three of these uh, female physicians down to the police station because of race, racism generated mm. harassment. And they have been in some trouble because they've incurred, they, they led to this woman's suicide. And so what should happen here is we certainly should be reading the notes. I mean, gosh, reading them on the news, that, that, that's another option. Mm -hmm. But uh, there, there should be a law against, uh, I like the idea of a law against encouraging people to die by suicide. In the US, there was uh, that teenage couple where the one encouraged through text message, the other one to just kill himself. And she went to you know, court. So why are these medical professors who are encouraging their students to die by suicide? There's actually a president of a med school that I know of right now who encourages his students to die by suicide. It's hard to believe, but you have people, I don't think, I mean, that seems hard to believe, but I think if you stand back and you think, oh, well, there are people in power positions right now that are not acting ethically. I think we all understand that. And there yeah. are people in power positions who need mental health care because they're not really behaving <laughs> for the common good. And so these people need to be held accountable. You know, if their actions lead to suicides or deaths, they should not be able to continue to collect their million dollar salary without some sort of repercussion. And so, um, gosh, I just forgot your question. What needs to happen? What was the question? Well, it was around, it was around the, the question of censorship and really understanding censorship. where, where that comes from. So, so that we can reverse it, right? Is it, is it a question of, again, in the film, we saw examples of, of frontline clinicians saying our leadership won't let us say that mm -hmm. this is the third suicide in a, right. in a short per period of so time. Where it comes from originally is probably from the fact that this has been so taboo religiously and culturally that like hundreds of years ago, if you died by suicide, they would put a stake through your heart and leave you at a crossroads. I mean, like this is something where they would, they would like, you know, mistreat your body in the aftermath of a suicide, right? And you were shunned 
after your death. Well, this is still happening. These people mm. are being shunned after their death, which in the film, I say that's like being buried twice, you know, like you died by hopelessness and now you're being shunned for all of eternity because nobody utters your name out loud and everyone's just supposed to get back to work. Um, and the other thing that I think has held us back are these suicide media guidelines, reporting guidelines, which I keep getting reminded by the, you know, some uh, people in the suicide space who like, you're not allowed to mention the cause of death. You're not allowed to, you can't list that as a headline. That's too sensational. Like they basically are censoring conversation around suicide and they've been effective at doing this for so long, intimidating the media from reporting on suicide. Like they would report on beheadings, kidnappings, murders. I mean, there's every other distressing thing in the paper on the front lines, on the headlines, but suicide, it's like, <gasps> You're not supposed to mention that. In fact, we had three doctors die by suicide in my town uh, just in a year and a half. And I went to the newspaper to talk to my friend who had just actually done um, a big story on my clinic. We were, we were friends, you know, and I said, hey, are they going to report this in the paper? And she said, oh, no. Um, the, the newspaper's guidelines here, you know, in Eugene, Oregon, we don't report on suicide unless the family wants it in the obituary. I'm like, this is not an isolated case. We lost three doctors in a year and a half in our small town and they're not going to report on it. Nope, they won't. So I went across the street to the, the TV station and a reporter took some furious notes because of course, since nobody's reporting on it, nobody even knows it's happening. It's all whispered through town. Of course, I know because I'm a doctor and I end up at all these funerals of other doctors. And so she took all these notes and then um, went to her boss who nixed the story. So basically, wow. the, I'm just telling you, I have experienced in 2012 and 2013, like extreme censorship in my town related to suicide. And so I'm just thankful at least Lorna Breen rose to the level of national media. I mean, I'm sad she died. And she certainly was traumatized by what she saw. She's the emergency doctor in New York. But thank God, some media outlets are willing to even report on suicide, but tracking back to your original statement, why would the medical institution censor their own employees from talking about it? Well, it's bad PR. You know, mm -hmm. they, they have their big billboards across town that say compassionate care, number one hospital. Like they don't want people to know it's the number one hospital for doctors stepping off the rooftop, which is mm -hmm. what would happen if they started reporting it and tracking it. But to not find out about this leaves some very evil behavior going on in institutions which are not addressing the core mm -hmm. issues leading to doctors stepping out the windows and the rooftops yeah. during their shifts, you know? Well, that, that leads me to think that, um, that there needs to be, and I hesitate almost to use this word because this venue can be very uh, punitive and inhumane, but a sort of morbidity and mortality uh, you know, a humane version of a morbidity and mortality review when a doctor's suicide happens or a doctor dies by suicide so that there can be a look at what are the underlying issues. And, and I, I sat in on one of the discussions you held following the screening of the film last month for Mental Health Month. Um, and there were all kinds of conversations about things that can be done, things that, you know, like making some of the medical school things pass fail so that there's less of a, a hierarchy. Um, but, but that examination, we examine processes when patients die, as we should. Um, sh it seems we ought to be 
putting in place some kind of process to examine what are the situations and, and factors that led to it when a physician dies by suicide. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Or? Every single one of these deserves a morbidity and mortality conference, which to my knowledge, none of them have had yet. And I have mm-hmm. uh, nearly 1,500 dead doctors on my registry. And some of them don't even have online obituary pages. You know, some of them are just lost to eternity the moment they die. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sad that we would, I mean, look at uh, what other um, professions do for their dead. You know, if there's a police yeah. officer that dies, they'll name a highway after him. You know, if there's a firefighter that dies, they line the fire trucks down the street and play, you know, if you die in a war, you have a casket with the bugles and the American flag. And there is a process for, you know, honored professions, the brothers and sisterhood of medicine, you know, police, firefighters, you know, there should be something in place that honors the people that are, let's just face it, public servants mm-hmm. that are in this, hopefully most of them for humanitarian to serve the public type of, you know, uh, high risk professions, you know, firefighters yeah. are running into houses and, 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 ooh, you know, like that, this is not policemen. I mean, even on the best day, that is a tough career, you know, and yeah. you know, they don't get mental health care either. I think, which as you can see is detrimental for them and all of us because yes. you cannot be in a high risk career without mental health care. That's the thing that I don't know whether that's even hitting the airwaves now. Like what about the lack of mental health care for police? You know, they see people die. Yeah. They arrest people who end up with criminal records. Like, how does that feel in your heart and soul? You know, what ends up happening, quite frankly, is you go numb and you get disconnected from your humanity. And then you start doing things that are a little bit weird. Right. Which is part of what we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. So are there any lessons learned from the COVID-19 crisis that you hope will carry forward into future reform efforts? You already referenced the fact that the media was willing to um, to bring light to what happened to Dr. Lorna Breen, where she died by suicide and, and the despair she was experiencing. Is there anything else you see coming out of COVID-19 that might help bring this to a new place? Yes, I think there's a high level of empathy for our healthcare heroes. Um, so the general public has more insight into the fact that like, yeah, we're human and we wear a mask, we get, you know, uh, indentations on our face and, oh, we have tears. Look, that's a doctor crying. They've never seen a doctor crying. You know, part of this problem is because doctors have had to practice under professional distance and had to have these fake smiles all the time that finally during COVID-19, we see a lot of doctors who are not fake smiling and now they're like actually real crying. So when you see doctors go from fake smiling to real crying, they become real to the average person who now can develop tears and feelings for the physician who previously was more like an inanimate object in a starched white coat, right? So that's a positive. Hopefully that will continue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Physicians are now feeling like it's okay to show their tears. So that's good. I used to have physicians contact me who got written up for being unprofessional for crying at work after a death. And they wanted to know if I had any research papers I could provide to defend themselves against their superior who wrote them up as unprofessional for crying. So we used to be in a situation where crying was absolutely not allowed by um, medical professionals. And we would either hide in bathroom stalls, hallways, hide in our cars to cry, just not cry at work. Uh, But now I think 
people are used to seeing doctors cry a little bit more and be scarred, at least by looking at their face. Their faces, I think during COVID, there's a congruency that people are seeing. Oh, the face of a doctor actually looks like how the doctor feels. Mm -hmm. Before that, there was just like a fixed smile <laughs> and you had no idea how the doctor felt. I think just because, again, the media is part of the problem and they portray the doctors as having hit the lottery lifestyle and having, you know, a big house and big car and no debt, you know, and, and you know how they portray us. And then the mm -hmm. general public feels like doctors have it made. Why should they ever complain? But I think COVID has opened a window, right? So a mm -hmm. window of empathy. The media is now reporting a little bit more on doctor suicides, good, doctor pain. And um, what else has come out of this? I, I think there's a, um, a, a willingness now for people to understand that we all need mental health care. How about mm -hmm. that? You know, like every one of us. So, well, and you've been providing at least something of an outlet through your hotline for, for years. So thank you for, for doing that. And hopefully that will not be a burden that you will have to carry um, so singularly on your shoulders. Um, no, I'm happy well. to report there are now psychiatrists eight years later who volunteered during COVID. I forgot to mention this. There's about, uh, I think, 800 now psychiatrists that have a volunteer, um, like physician support line, like a 1-800 type number where any physician can call in and talk about their COVID related trauma. And they're going to try to continue this like uh, in perpetuity. So that's wonderful because and I want to just say not everyone wants to necessarily call me. Some mm -hmm. people want to talk to a psychiatrist. Some people in medicine don't want to talk to a psychiatrist because they don't trust that a psychiatrist won't write this down somehow mm -hmm. in document and they want to call me. Some people just want to talk to their friend or a pastor or somebody else. So I think we need multiple touch points where people can call somebody that they feel aligned with personally, mm -hmm. because uh, some male emergency doctors would rather probably talk to a male emergency doctor who survived suicide rather than a female family doc or a psychiatrist, right? Right. So we want to give people as many outlets and options as possible to talk to somebody who can be, you know, a warm line or a hotline. I didn't first know even what a warm line was, but that's sort of a step down from a hotline. That's when somebody's not got a gun in their mouth and ready to jump now, but they want to just talk. So I think a lot of people, I serve them as a warm line, like mm -hmm. somebody who they know is not going to turn them in anywhere. I've never called 911, never turned anyone into a medical board, never really taken notes uh, beyond just what I need to remember for the next call. Um, but yeah, so I just want people to feel like there is a safe place somewhere for them to talk to an aligned health professional who gets it. Because mm -hmm. I think there is a little bit of tension around calling a generic 1-800 non-physician related suicide helpline, because you could end up on there with your friend's college age daughter Right. And they could maybe not know what an internship or residency is and you're crying as a neurosurgeon and maybe they want to tell somebody and then you get in trouble. Right. Yeah. So I think we all need many different options and resources and just a recognition that mental health is a real thing. Mm -hmm. a, a quick way that I like to summarize this is that, you know, dental health, we're all on a dental health 
maintenance program of some sort, or we would not have teeth. Like, let's just right. say you'd have cavities, you'd have terrible breath, and you know, like it would just be a nightmare in your mouth, right? So the equivalent of what's what's going on in your brain if you don't get mental health care, especially in a high-risk profession, right? So with dental health care, you know, you can go to a store and there's entire lines of products just for your dental health. Everyone goes like every six months to the dentist or so, you know, and um, but what are we doing for our mental health, especially in a high risk profession, which is the equivalent of eating Halloween candy every day for your <laughs> teeth, right? That's that would that would be like an emergency doctor's equivalent yeah. brain, right? So if you think right. of Lorna Breen, for example, just talk to her about her again. Her family said that she had no pre-existing mental health issues. Well, to me, that just means she never went and got any mental health care. If right. you're an emergency doctor, you have mental health issues because you've seen people die. And she worked in New York City, so I'm sure she saw gunshot wounds and little kids that were stabbed and mm -hmm. people that died of cancer. You know what I mean? She's, yes. you can just imagine what she's seen before COVID, okay? So she had the equivalent of Halloween candy on the brain, okay, with no help, no help ever, you know, and then COVID. Yeah. So what is that going to do to her? Well, your compartmentalization can fail at a certain point, you know, when you just get to the threshold of your capacity for trauma. And so sadly, she had no, it wasn't that she just didn't have any pre-existing mental health care. She didn't have anyone that she knew that she could call safely during COVID because she didn't have that pre-existing relationship. This is why I think getting into med school, like every single person needs to have a therapist or a coach mm -hmm. or a counselor or somebody like on speed dial on your phone. Right. That you're Which ironically, if you, if you study mental, if you study psychology or psychiatry, you do have to go through some of that, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. care, which is interesting, but not regular uh, mm -hmm. non-mental health doctors. Yeah. So that should just be like on speed dial on your phone so that yes, when COVID hits, you already have a five-year relationship with somebody you've been talking to every week or two so that you're not just sitting in a chair unable to get up, needing to have, you know, it, it, prevention is key. Prevention. I think that's a great note to end on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Weibel. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Yeah, no problem. And just FYI, anyone can re reach me at idealmedicalcare.org. And I usually return uh, messages within a few minutes to hours. Uh, that so. was certainly my experience. So thank you for responding. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. No and we'll continue with special COVID-19 episodes of the Caring Greatly podcast for the foreseeable future. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify, or you can find links to all of our episodes at vocera.com slash podcast. This is Liz Bohm. Thank you for caring greatly. Mm -hmm.